This is an Emmaus Church podcast. For more information about Emmaus Church, please visit EmmausDenver.com. Let me just start with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for the Gospel of Luke. I thank you that you, through your words, have communicated to us about the word, Jesus Christ. Lord, uh, there's so many things about him that we love and admire and um, are comforting to us or encouraging to us. And, and yet at the same time, he is unique. He's the only God-man. He is the only one whose word speaks with authority. The same word that created the universe, the same word that holds everything together by the power of his word is Jesus Christ himself. Lord, so I pray as we look at our guide, as we look at the uniqueness of the authority and power of Jesus, that we would walk away here today with hearts changed and um, changed hearts that, that bled into our, our, our thoughts and our emotions and, and the rest of our body in, in a way that had us cling to his words like no other words that are out there. Yeah, help us love him and his words like nothing else. In your name I pray, amen. amen. So we're sort of working our way uh, through the book of Luke. We're calling it the Path to Glory, a sketch of Luke. And I have a slide where I break down each of the major sections. Um, and I kind of referenced this last week. And I, w- I would just encourage you, if you're using your journal Bibles, if you're writing in your Bibles, um, just to take note of sort of the, the broad themes that go through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And we're going to be hitting on these themes uh, a handful of times. Our, 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 our last part one, the guide, is this morning. And then we're going to spend a few weeks uh, talking through the way. So we're talking about the path to glory. Jesus is, is giving us instructions on the, on the way to glory, as what it looks like in the kingdom. And then, then we're going to work the, through the largest section where there's going to be pushback and dangers and temptations and, and, and sort of things that want to pull you off that path to glory. Uh, and then we'll see the finale as we, as we lead up to uh, Easter this year. Um, so this morning, and I, I bring that up again because I, I, part of my desire for, for this uh, series is for you guys to have a better grip on just the Gospel of Luke. So when you open up the Gospel of Luke, you can have like a, a sketch in your head of kind of what's going on in these major sections. And so hopefully as you're reading Luke, as you're considering Luke, as you're thinking through the book of Luke yourself, you can have a better idea of where you're at in the story uh, and, and just understand scripture better yourself. So you can take your Bible, you can read it, and you have a better grip on what you're reading in the book of Luke. So that's kind of why I, I've come back to this. So this morning, we're doing our last section about the uniqueness of the guide. And we're going to look at his words. Uh, We're going to look at how his words enrage, uh, exalt, and equip. Enrage, exalt, and equip. Uh, And I think that's, you know, as as I kind of went over this section, there's some really unique things about Jesus being uh, the son of God, the second Adam. We talked about that last week. Just the the idea that this isn't just another uh, one in God's story who has... uh, character attributes that are positive. He's altogether a unique second Adam. And so because our guide has that unique reality of who he is, it gives him a a little more uh, weight. It gives him a little more authority. It gives him um, more more glory, honestly. And and it gives us a reason to look to him to say he can be our guide because he's uniquely positioned like the first Adam was to show us the way. He's uniquely positioned to represent us in a way that the the first Adam sort of represented us into everything going down the drain. And so now we're looking at a unique aspect of the guide. We're looking at a unique aspect of the guide, his words. His words. And I I bring this up because as we'll see, as we work through a few chapters, we're going to bounce around uh, in in a few chapters in Luke. So... I uh, hope you have your Bibles open or ready for that. But we're gonna be—we're just gonna be in Luke this morning. His words, his words have weight. His words have weight. Uh, 
And I, and it's one of those like, okay, yes, that makes sense. But if we think about it, words generally just have weight. Words have weight. I mean, how many times have you been in the heat of the moment with a partner, a friend, and you say something and you really wish you could just reel that back in? And sometimes it's very short. Or maybe just a few words. And those few words have a lot of weight. And you regret it. And the reverse is true. I mean, I think sometimes we have been, you know, each one of us could probably think of a time we're struggling or it's difficult and we're asking God for wisdom and someone comes along and says something to you that just bounces around in your head as an encouragement. God used those words, they have weight, to just encourage you, to remind you of something that you were, should have been thinking of the whole time. To, to refresh your soul. And so this idea that words have weight comes across us in all parts of life. I think of our internal dialogue, like what we say about ourselves in our head, how we feel about ourselves as we, as we spin and think through things. Or, I, you know, at work, and I open up, you know, not recently, But when I was in the office, my day was basically how many words are in my inbox? (laughs) You know, is it this big or is it this big? You know, those are are just words on the screen and like just the thought that you'd have this many things has all this like weight, this weight to them. And God has designed it this way. He, He spoke existence into being with words. Jesus has talked about the word incarnate. He's designed it this way because in his image, you and I made in his image, are meant to fellowship and communicate with God through words. Like they're meant to have all this weight because that's the conduit by which we know and experience God himself. So of course they can have great depth of grief and difficulty and highs of joy and peace. Like God is using words for us to experience who he is. And it may go without saying, maybe what I'm encouraging us to think through as we look at Jesus' words, his should have the most weight. What God has said, what Jesus says should have the most weight of any words that were ever spoken to yourself, from others, that come out of your mouth, Jesus' words should have the most weight. Amen. And I, I like this section in Luke because they have a lot of weight <laughs> in this section. Like even what we read, they were like, who is this person? Verse 32 of chapter four, his word, singular, it's interesting, like What he's saying is like encapsulated in one thing. His word possessed authority. His word just has all this weight. And Luke, I think as he writes this gospel, is trying to help us see how much weight the words of Jesus have. How important they are. And so it's, let's look at, um, we're going to kind of go through a handful of stories. But let's look at where he enrages the people. His words have so much weight, the people he grew up with want to kill him. That's like the first kind of story that goes into here. Look at chapter four, verses 16. And Ben read this. I think it's interesting because it's an encouraging part of scripture. And it's such an encouraging part of scripture that they tried to kill him after he read it. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, you know, where he, where he grew up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And they began to, and he began to say, this is what Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. This is the Jesus that grew up with us. And he's quoting Isaiah and saying, just so you know, that's all about me. And they're like, what? Wow. How is that possible? (laughs) Which then goes to the next part of the sentence. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? (laughs) And we don't, you know, is one of these, I was talking to Levi, I was like, this is one of those passages where you're like, how, what was the tone of voice that everybody used, you know? Were they like, isn't it Joseph's son? You know, or were they like, is this not? You know, like, how did they like express that? But Jesus' response kind of gives us a clue. It would seem to be that they're like changing their attitude a little bit about Jesus. Like, who does he really think he is? And Jesus says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. Which is interesting because it's alluding to the mockery he'll receive on the cross. And he basically just goes through scripture and says, look, if you look at scripture, there are plenty of examples where God calls a prophet and he has something to say and the people who grew up with this prophet, the people who know this prophet are the last ones to believe what he has to say. He's he's giving them examples from scripture of where this didn't go so well for prophets that grew up and had something to speak speak for on God's behalf. And then look at verse 28. They didn't really like those examples. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. I've had some like dramatic, uncomfortable, like going back home, you know, and you're like have a big family dinner and you're like, oh, what was just said was very uncomfortable. No one has picked me up and tried to kill me. They were upset. That infuriated them. They were enraged. And we don't get we don't get a lot of clues on what really struck the nerve, you know? We don't really get um you know, it doesn't say they were, this is what bothered him or whatever. But it seems to me from the context, as Jesus shows up, what does he proclaim? What's the, the verse that we, that we said in our, in our call to worship? He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. I'm here to rescue you. I'm, I'm here to save you. Recovering the sight of the blind to help those who are oppressed. He's like looking around the room with the people he grew up with and he's saying, I'm here to rescue you. Apparently they didn't want to hear that. And I think a lot of times we don't like the words of Jesus. They irk us. We're all good Christians, so they don't enrage us. They're just gonna bother us a little bit. They bother us because they expose our need. They tell us that we're helpless without Jesus. They remind us that what we have to contribute isn't actually good enough. I think Jesus's words can irk us a little bit because they get down to the part of us that we want to ignore and he says, you need me. 
you need me. And we don't want to admit to that. That's annoying. I don't like to be exposed as someone who is desperately in need. I like to feel pretty good about myself most of the time. And then when I am in need, I'll come to him. But his words are telling us every hour I need thee, Lord. Every hour. Another time that they were enraged, if you flip forward to chapter 6, look at verse 6. These are not his relatives, but these are just some people who feel like they have it all together. At least it would seem in the story. These are the experts in the law. These are the, the people that the, the crowds considered the most godly. On another Sabbath, chapter 6, verse 6, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. The Sabbath is an important rhythm built into creation of this weekly idea of rest. And there's some additional layers to that in the Mosaic law that were specifically for the nation of Israel. And then on top of that, the, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees has all kinds of other, we can read about it, all kinds of other rules that they were very particular about so that they had all these other extra rules to make sure they never violated the central rule, which was related to how God created everything. So it's like rules upon rules upon rules. And they're very particular about that. There's actually, this still kind of goes today, some appliances have a Sabbath button on it. Like uh, Trevor's fridge has a Sabbath button on it. Uh, I saw a stove recently with a Sabbath button on it. It's like, like, so so when you push the button, it's like following all the right rules to make sure that you're not violating this day of rest. And so here is Jesus teaching, and there was a man who was struggling, who was suffering, and they're like, hey, if he does this act, if he does this, if he, if he heals someone, he could be working. And we all know you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. But he knew their thoughts. I love that line. It's like, Jesus knows what's going on. He knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? Amen. Think about that. It's like God has given us this day of rest where we can glorify and honor him. God has given us a rhythm where we can show uh, mercy and love to those around us by, by keeping others from working in a sense. There was this like cultural, this wasn't just a me thing. This was like, even in, in, in the Old Testament, there was preparation and thing you had to do so that your servants uh, also had a day of rest. It was like, like built into the system. And he says to them, hey, what's better to do on the, on the Sabbath, to, to save life or destroy it? And I like how they respond. After looking around at them, looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. Like they didn't say anything. Like they didn't answer the question. He's looking at them after he answers this. And he says, stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Filled with fury. They were enraged. And we'll see as Jesus teaches more about the way as we move along in the book of Luke. For Jesus, what's very, very important, what his words expose are our motives. Our motives. Like why are we doing what we're doing? His words expose that. Because a lot of times we can do things on the outside that just look pretty good. Like they're like, look, Lord, we're just trying to, we're just trying to like obey the Sabbath. We're just trying to, we're don't, we don't, we just don't want anyone to work, Jesus. So I don't know if you should heal. We're just, you know, we're just trying to do the right thing here, you know. But his words expose this reality that they could care less for the suffering of others. The the idea that the Sabbath was meant to bring rest to people 
was meant to draw them closer to God. And here is this man suffering a disease and they, they have the, the gall, they have the like, they're so obsessed with this rule that they don't even want the suffering of this man to be relieved. And Jesus speaks to them and what they hate is that his words reveal that they could care less about that guy. His words reveal our motives. And sometimes they're not so good. Sometimes we like to do the nice, recognizable things, not because we're glorifying God or we want to trust what he's doing, because it makes us look good. Or at work, you know, the Bible verse, we want to do everything under the glory of God and also in a way that you get recognized and get promoted and advance your career. You know, both, both kind of, right? You know, so there's, there are, are deep down, our intentions are often more wrapped up in how I can benefit myself and how I can glorify God or draw others to him. And the difficult part, the like painful part is it's the words of God. It's the words of Jesus that expose that in us. So you think about your motives. You think about the things that we need, the the reality that we, we do need our Lord and Savior to work in and through us all the time with everything, everywhere. You can ask yourself, where am I good without him? Where am I good without him? Where do I feel comfortable not having one thought of anything Jesus has said? What part of my life is that just not necessary? Because Jesus is saying, you need me all the time. You need me all the time. Another thing to think about is when we honor the Lord, when we serve, when we go out of our way, what is our motive in that? Do we stop and just reflect on that? Are we doing everything with our eyes and heart fixed on the glory and majesty of God? Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, we're doing it towards the glory of God. Like, do we stop to consider that? Flip back to Luke chapter one. I wanna encourage you a little bit because uh, the parts of Jesus's words that irk us that we like to avoid, that that annoy us maybe a little bit. If you go back to chapter one, look at what Mary says in her psalm, verse 51 and verse 52 of chapter one. Here's Mary talking about Jesus showing up on the scene. He's shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And here, here it is, the good news. He's exalted those of humble estate. He's exalted those of humble estate. So when, when Jesus' words irk us a little bit, we have two choices. We can suppress it. We can write it off. We can ignore it. All those are choice number one. Or we can just be honest with ourselves and say, I really don't do these things for God's glory. Lord, I need your help. I need your help to reorient why I even do this wonderful good thing for you. I need your help to reorient my thoughts at work where I have no thoughts of you all day because I don't think that's relevant. I need your wisdom and your help to have thoughts of you and to do these things for your glory. And, and what he does what Mary says. When we humble ourselves, he exalts those of humble estate. So we don't have to exalt ourselves. When his words rub against us and irk us and, and we don't want to deal with that part and we actually choose to humble ourselves and say, you're right, Lord. Your, your words spoke everything into existence and what your words say about my motives and my intentions and my thoughts are true. 
I do fall short. Then he exalts us. He loves to work in that posture to bring us up to enjoy more of him. He loves to change our hearts and our motives so we're doing things to glorify and honor him. He loves to help us recognize that we need him so that we could rejoice in him and enjoy more of him. And that's why his words don't just enrage, they don't just irk us, they exalt us. They encourage us, they build us up. Look at chapter five. Chapter five, verse 12. A couple of ways in this section that Jesus' words are shown to exalt, to, to lift us up from our humble estate, are through cleansing us and forgiving us. Cleansing us and forgiving us. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 12, chapter five, verse 12. When he was, when Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Disease aside, like leprosy and skin related diseases are ew. So we say with JJ, that's ew. <laughs> But he says, think about what he says. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. He doesn't actually ask for healing. And I think that's a helpful clue because in the Old Testament, the only way you could draw near to God, the only way you could be in his temple where he was present and where the worship of God was in nowhere else in the world except for the the temple right there, The only way you could draw near and experience the presence of God in the Old Testament is if you were ceremonially clean. In certain skin diseases, and a bunch of other things, read Leviticus, like the first half, it's all about cleanliness. (laughs) Certain skin diseases made you unclean. So you can't even approach God to worship him in the temple if you weren't clean. And so I love what this guy says. He begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. You can enable me at your very word to approach God in the temple and enjoy him. You can make me clean. You can exalt me so that I can enjoy the presence and glory of God in the temple. And I think that makes some sense of what Jesus is saying. Verse 13 says, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. He's like, you can't, I've cleansed you. Go to the temple. Prove to the priest and make an offering and worship your heavenly father in his presence at the temple. This is the the beauty of what Jesus does to exalt us with his words. His words say to us, it is finished. His words say to us, you are the beloved son and daughter. His words say to us that no matter how Dirty you feel from whatever you just did or you're afraid of what you're gonna do, go approach God. You're clean. That's what his words say about us. There's no guilt. There's nothing we could do to undo that. It doesn't matter what we say and spin about in our head. God is saying, you're clean. Approach me. Enjoy me, have fellowship with me. That's what Jesus says about you. If you look at verse 17, we have another thing that Jesus' words can exalt us. They don't just, they don't just cleanse us, but they forgive us. That, that even that the man who was cleansed, he, what did he go and do? He had to go and make a sacrifice. <laughs> He had to go and sort of restore that relationship in an appropriate way. 
He was clean. He could approach God. And now he needed that relationship to be restored. So when he approached God, it was one of fellowship and not one of uh, enmity. And so in the very next section, verse 17, he says, one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And and the power of the Lord was with them to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus, but finding no way to bring him in. Because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus, which that's kind of a just taking apart the roof to to get him down. It's like the the Bible story as a kid you hear all the time, like in Sunday school class, like, look at at how good of friends they were, you know? (laughs) Like, but but I, I mean, I'm just, he's sitting in there teaching. And I'm I like, if so, all of a sudden construction crews started like undoing the ceiling up here, I think all of us would be like, come on, you know, like, what is going, you know, what is going on here? How come we didn't get a notice of these things? And so this stuff is happening and, and it's just kind of just messing up the moment, I would say. So they, they let him down on the roof and, and it's before Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, like they're, they're willing to just like, embarrass themselves to the nth degree to get their friend to Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And I wonder if they're like, like what we just did? <laughs> like what's going on in their head when, when Jesus, that's like the, they come down of the roof and they're just like wrecking the whole scene And the first thing Jesus says is, your sins are forgiven. Well, no surprise, the Pharisees and the scribes have something to say about that. And the scribes and the Pharisees begin to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? I wonder if Jesus at that time was like, you're so close. (laughs) You almost got it. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I think it's very kind of him to do what he does next. Like he has a heart for even those who would reject his words. The same people that are enraged at what he says. Like how else can I show you that that's who I am? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? What do you have to doubt? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? But that you may know, like he wants them to know, he wants them to understand. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins which is, God is the only one that has authority for that. They were right. They were on the right track. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and we're filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Amen. Wow. But think about the craziness of that situation. Is Jesus trying to help them understand that he is the authority to forgive sins? Like that's what he wants you to know. Like the same words that caused this man who had to be brought into the roof, just get up, grab his bed and walk out the door. Those same words have the power to say you are forgiven. Done. You're forgiven. There's no annoyance between you and the Father, if you're forgiven. There's no shame between you and your Father, if, God is, if Jesus has said you are forgiven. 
There's no, you know, limiting access to God because of what you've done recently. There's no like debt to be repaid. Like, oh, he's gotten me into heaven and loves me, but I gotta, man, I have a lot of wrongs to right. <laughs> no, you're forgiven. The, the, because of the words of Jesus, your relationship with God is restored. <laughs> You're clean. You can approach him. And when you approach him, he loves you because you're forgiven. Is that how you feel about yourself? Are those the words that define how you view yourself? I mean, that's hard. But this, I think that Luke is trying to help us see and the number of time what Jesus said or the words or the word or the word, like, that, like it's emphasized a lot in these few chapters. I think what Luke is encouraging us to see is that Jesus isn't just unique and that he represents us as a second Adam. He is that. But what he has to say should have more weight than anything else in the world. When you begin to say, in your head usually, I failed, I'm worried, I wish I wouldn't have done that, I could have used this week better, I don't like how I said that to my kid, and you start to spin this narrative about who you are, that's when you need the words of Jesus. That's when you have to repent and say, Lord, forgive me that my words about myself hold more weight right now. Your words are truth. Your words define me. Your words are the things that should exalt me and lift me up and encourage me. Doesn't matter what anyone says. Doesn't matter what I say. So they, the words of Jesus hold a lot of weight. Kind of rub us the wrong way sometimes. I think if we humble ourselves and listen to what he has to say about us, they do exalt us. They tell us we're clean. They tell us we're forgiven. But they also equip us. And I want to hit a, a, a handful of points here. They equip us. They equip us against our enemy. They equip us against our own experience that often leads us astray. And they equip us against our expectations. Our, our enemy, our experience, and our expectations. And look at chapter 4, verse 31. This is what we read earlier. He spoke, and the demon left him. And look at verse 36. They say, they were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits. And if we're following along in the story, it should, um, it should make sense to us because what happened in the last section, the unclean spirit himself approached him. The devil himself showed up and tried to lead Jesus astray. And what did he do? He spoke the word of God against him. And the devil had no power. He left with his tail tucked between his legs and looked for another opportunity. So if the devil himself can't stand against the words of Jesus, why would any of his minions be able to? Amen. It, this is Jesus helping equip us 
to see that his words have more power and authority than any, as Paul would say, the principalities and powers of the air. There's more in what Jesus is saying in his words. There's more power and authority there than anything the devil has to throw at us. It's equipping us. It's helping us see that, like we talked about last week, when the devil whispers those lies or we, we want to believe something that's not true, the answer to that, the way to battle that, is more of the words of God. That's where there's true authority. That's where we can deal with those things. And it's also against our experience, not just the, the enemy that's out there. I love this in chapter five, verse one. This is a fun story. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked them to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. Like, I, I mean, I've never fished <laughs> with nets, like, manually. <laughs> you know, it's exhausting enough to do this uh, when, the, when the fish is, like, 10 pounds, you know? Um, you've done some deep-sea fishing where that's just, like, it feels like it's forever. It just feels like maybe that's why you guys like to fly fish, because you're like, I got it or I didn't get it. <laughs> but to, like, spend all night in multiple boats 2,000 years ago and trying to pull up fish. And this is like your profession, your livelihood. Like you, this is your experience, you know? Like I, I, I would, when he says, hey, go out and throw down your nets, Simon could have answered, Jesus, come on, Jesus. Trust me, I'm a fisherman. I do this for a living. Don't you build tables? Isn't that your background? Like where you come from? <laughs> like there's so many ways, everything about his experience said this is the stupidest thing I could ever do. I know better. I understand. And what Jesus' words are doing here is protecting us against our own experience. There is a sense in which our experience rubs up against what God is saying. Our experience is what should take the back seat. Our experience is what should take the back seat. And that's hard when you feel like an expert in something. And God's saying, know this. And you're like, that can't be right. That can't be right. But Simon, you know, maybe it's because he'd done a bunch of healing, maybe because he just didn't listen to him or just the spirit. He answered, master, we toiled all night. It's like he has to like remind him, like just so you know, we did this a whole bunch, but at your word, at your word, I will let down the nets. I'm sure they were thrilled about that too because they were cleaning and washing their nets a second earlier. So now they're going like to redo that all over again. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. <laughs> and they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. They're like, yeah, I can handle this. Don't worry, I'll throw the net down. You know, and it's like, oh no, I can't handle this all of a sudden. And they came and filled the boat so they, they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus and said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And I wonder if his words were exposing some of his motives, some of what was going on in his heart. But God's word, the words of Jesus, because of who he is, don't just equip us against our enemy, they equip us against our experience. A lot of times our experience says X and God's word is saying Y. And when those come up against each other, it's our experience which should take the back seat. They're having a great time. I also think it equips us against our expectations. And I'll make this point quick. Look at verse 10. They were, well, look at verse nine. We'll start at verse nine. For he was also, uh, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And, and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. 
And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Amen. They left everything and followed him. Who would expect them to do that? And there's a lot of instances in scripture where Jesus, they say, hey, I want to follow you. And, and Jesus says, this is how it's going to be. And they're like, eh, not, not so much about that. But his word equips us against our expectations. They literally left everything and followed Jesus. Like, wait, we're not cleaning those nets. <laughs> Leave that to somebody else. We did that once today. Look, this happens again. Look at verse 27 in chapter five. After he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, this is like the most hated person in the culture at the time, basically a traitor. Like you can't tax right unless you know who and where people live. And you can't know who and where people live unless you get someone that's also involved in that culture. So it's like, hey, who knows where everybody lives and how many there are and wants to make a buck off of the Roman Empire while we're here. And that's what tax collectors did. <laughs> Made money off of their friends and the fact that they know who and where people lived. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. You wouldn't expect him to do that. Not only would you not expect them to do that, you wouldn't expect Jesus to pick these people. <laughs> Fishermen and tax collectors. These are not like the rock stars of the culture. They're not the influencers if social media was a thing, you know? These are the people that nobody liked. I don't know about fishermen. Maybe I, that's a stretch. But they're definitely lower class. Let's put it that way. And Jesus speaks to them, his words, and they say, okay, I will follow you. It's because his words are equipping us against our expectations. Against our expectations. And here's where I want to apply this specifically. Every week we come here because we believe to some degree or another that there's joy and peace in a God we can't see, hear, or touch. We, we sing worship songs to a person we've never met. We expose the deepest, darkest, most wicked parts about who we are in prayer to a God that we can't touch. And we genuinely believe that that's where joy and peace are found. You know, sometimes we struggle with that. That's part of the Christian life. But when you go to your neighbor when you go to your friend or your coworker and say, hey, life is crazy. Politics, I, no one likes them, no matter what side you're on. Things don't look so good. Eggs are $8 or whatever. <laughs> Chat GPT is gonna take over the world, you know. <laughs> whatever the thing that's going on in your life or whatever the, the stuff that's difficult or, or, you know, like a simpler one, we're working on the kitchen for forever, you know? Like there's plenty of things that bring turmoil to our lives. And you say to your friend, I don't need a vacation. I need more of the presence of God Amen. so that I have peace and joy. They're gonna look at you and say, you're crazy. <laughs> if they really understand what you're saying. God's word is going, protecting us, equipping us against our expectations because sometimes they're gonna look at you and say, really? Is that how, that, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about that. Sometimes they're gonna pick up everything and follow Jesus. And that's gonna go counter to everything you expect. That's the beauty and the wonder of the words of Jesus. They're capable of those things. They're capable of those things. So here's where I want to end. I would encourage you, whether through your journal Bible or whatever, to just spend some time and look at that section and see how the words of Jesus have so much weight. To have a rhythm 
at home with your children of just meditating on and considering the words of God. I think we're in Luke for a while. There's no reason to go off into other places if this is difficult for you. Read Luke. It's a great thing to just chew on and digest and see over and over again. There's plenty of plans or ways you can, you can get into the word and things like that. But if, if Jesus's word is meant to humble us, to kind of rub at us the wrong way, if Jesus is, if the word of God is meant to exalt us and encourage us and remind us of things, if it's meant to equip us against the enemy, if it's meant to equip us against the, our own faults because we think we know what we're doing in our own experience, if it's meant to equip us against our expectations, I would encourage you, Emmaus, to have a rhythm of being in that word. Or you're gonna miss out on all that. Or you're gonna believe the things that you're saying about yourself that God isn't. You're not gonna be ready for you're in a situation you need wisdom and you're not equipped. I just encourage you, if the words of Jesus have the most weight, if that's what you believe, look at your life, pie chart out the words you expose yourself to and say, which ones have the most weight? Because those are the ones that are gonna shape and form you. So what is your rhythm to be in the word, to remember the words of Jesus that are capable of so many amazing things and that remind you of how much God loves you, how much he wants to draw near to you, how much he wants to encourage you. And I think as a church, if that's our rhythm, is to take more seriously the words of Jesus, we'll be more equipped for what God brings, whatever that is. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for just the reminder of the weight and the glory and the majesty, what, what your words are capable of. Lord, you speak and the storm is calmed. You speak and we reorient our lives around the worship of you. You speak and you defy all expectations. Lord, I pray that your spirit, the spirit who, who brought us the word, the spirit who carried along men as they wrote the scriptures that we read and consider even today, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts to help us see the value of the words of Jesus so we could have more peace, more joy, and more wisdom as we try to honor you in this world. In your name I pray, amen.